Almighty God shaped medicine on mold to relieve disease's ruin and mankind's load. With powders, brushwood, roots, and leaves and herbs, bloodletting, stones, secretions, seeds, charms, and words, and potions, every ill falls dead away. Hello, and welcome back to History Obscura. Once upon a time in 1453, England's King Henry VI was struck down with a debilitating and mysterious illness. Taken suddenly, the king entered what appears to have been a catatonic stupor for over a year. The causes are still not known to modern medicine. Most modern diagnoses of the king's illness tentatively identify it as catatonic schizophrenia. Henry's maternal grandfather, King Charles VI of France, suffered from recurring severe bouts of quote-unquote madness, during which he became dangerously violent, did not recognize his wife or the fact that he was king. Charles's bouts could last months at a time, He may have suffered from a form of schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder, or encephalitis. The onset had been a fever and seizures in 1392, and it may well be that Henry inherited a disposition to schizophrenia from his grandfather, but that is pure supposition. His symptoms were totally different to those of Charles VI. Interestingly, neither Charles' son, the Dauphin, nor his French grandson inherited his madness. Henry's half-brothers by Queen Catherine of Valois seem to have avoided it as well. History books abound with references to King Henry's madness and recurring bouts of insanity and feeble-mindedness, describing him as a simpleton and a natural fool. The malady struck Henry at Clarendon, near Salisbury, without warning on or about the 10th of August, 1453. It did not appear to be a physical disease that his attendants could recognize, but rather a mental breakdown that robbed him of the awareness of his surroundings and of the power over his limbs. The king fell into an inertia, it is said, a torpor from which he could not be roused, At first, his household tried to keep the matter as quiet as possible, in the hope that the fit, or whatever it was, would soon pass and Henry would return to his normal self. It quickly became evident that it would not pass so easily, and could not be kept a secret for any length of time. For the time being, he remained at the hunting lodge of Clarendon, since he was clearly in no condition to travel. At Westminster, the council carried on government in the king's name as if nothing had happened. But they were not going to be able to continue so if the king's state did not improve soon. The collapse must have been a great shock for Queen Margaret. But fortunately, she was a strong and healthy woman, so that her pregnancy was not endangered. On the 10th of September, the mayor and aldermen of London, in their scarlet gowns and hoods, came to escort the queen upriver to her lying in at Westminster. At the beginning of October, 
Henry was brought back to Windsor by easy stages. It was Saturday, the 13th of October, when Queen Margaret gave birth at the Palace of Westminster to a healthy baby boy who was a prince and an heir. The news was carried to Windsor, but it did not register with Henry. Soon, all of England was rejoicing at the birth of an heir to the throne, and two people closely affected by this happy event did not join in the general merriment. The first was Richard, Duke of York, who had lost all hope of being officially recognized as the heir presumptive now that a prince had been born, and of course the child's father in his comatose state comprehending nothing of the news. In the new year, Queen Margaret brought the baby prince to be presented to the king at Windsor. Prince Edward, as he was called, was born into Henry's presence, where he sat with two attendants whose task it was to keep watch over the king day and night. The Duke of Buckingham knelt before the king and, presenting the child to his royal father, begged him to bless the prince, thereby giving official recognition to his son. But Henry displayed no reaction at all. He sat as if totally unconscious of the Duke's presence. Buckingham remained there with the young prince in his arms, still hoping for some sign from the king. But after a while, Margaret herself came into the chamber and, taking her baby, presented it to the king as Buckingham had done, beseeching him to bless the child. She was equally unsuccessful, save that once Henry looked upon the prince and then cast his eyes down again without any further sign. The abbot Wethamsteed, who may have seen Henry at Windsor or at least had report from someone who had, described the king in an illness as such. He was so lacking in understanding and memory, and so incapable that he was neither able to walk upon his feet nor lift his head, nor well to move himself from the place where he was seated. This neatly sums up Henry's prostration, although, as we have just seen, he does appear to have been able to move his head to some degree. The previous lines describe a man who has completely withdrawn within himself and is no longer aware of the world around him. But Henry could still eat and drink, though undoubtedly his attendants fed him. He could move his limbs, but had no will to that end. His attendants had to raise him to his feet, supporting and guiding him as he was moved from one room to another. On the 15th of March, Council appointed a commission of three doctors and two surgeons to attend the king and treat his mysterious illness. They were to employ remedies such as they could find in ancient authorities, and their commission listed a wide variety of possibilities such as electuaries, that is a paste of powders and medicines sweetened with sugar, potions, waters, syrups, confections, unguents, wax ointments, laxatives, clysters, that is, an enema, suppositories, head shaving, head purges, gargles, baths, poultices, fomentations, plasters, embrocations, and, of course, bloodletting, 
dietary control would also have been practiced. It's a fairly wide range of treatments open to the doctors, although considering the high station of the patient and the degree of ignorance as to what afflicted him, we may be sure that the doctors were very cautious and would not have employed all of the above. At least, not all at once. All attempts of the medical professionals notwithstanding, the king only emerged from his prolonged vegetative state at Christmas of 1454, discovering that his French queen, Margaret of Anjou, had miraculously produced a son and heir during his vacuity after eight childless years of marriage. Unfortunately, neither the male heir nor Henry's initial recovery would save him. Continued bouts of illness meant that other people vying for the throne used Henry's illness to call his leadership into question. After repeated bouts of catatonic vegetative states, Henry died in 1471, imprisoned in the Tower of London by his own nephew and successor, Edward IV. Despite his shortcomings and struggles as a ruler, Henry VI was widely regarded as a saintly figure by many of his subjects. His piety, humility, and devotion to God were seen as admirable qualities, and after his death, a cult developed around him. Henry's death was widely mourned, and many people claimed to have witnessed miracles at his tomb shortly after his passing. Quickly, the cult of Henry VI began to develop, and his tomb at Chertsey Abbey became a popular pilgrimage site. Legend has it that miracles started to occur at the tomb shortly after the king's death. Many people claimed to have been cured of illnesses or to have had prayers answered after visiting his tomb. His cult grew in popularity, and he was eventually canonized by the Catholic Church in 1920. It did not hurt the former king's reputation that there was a widespread belief that he'd been murdered, and if not by the hand of Edward himself, but by someone near the new king. The people of England felt sorry for the gentle and pious Henry, who had never started wars or bent to violence, and who had offered pardons to the hundreds of people who could easily have been sent to the gallows. By 1473, Pilgrims traveled from faraway regions to the dead king's statue at York Minster to light candles and pray. This enraged King Edward, who in 1479 had the statue removed. In 1484, however, Richard III, possibly motivated by guilt, had Henry's remains reburied at St. George's Chapel in Windsor. That tomb became a national shrine. It was about 1484 when John Blancman, a Carthusian monk who'd been a fellow of Eton and a chaplain to Henry, wrote an admiring memoir of his old master to show how even a great man could be a saint. Blockman emphasized Henry's piety and simplicity. His shabby clothes with a hair shirt beneath them and a sexual puritanism that seems odd to modern minds he claimed that the king had visions of Christ, the Virgin, and of the saints. Interestingly, as a Carthusian accustomed to identifying qualities that suited men for a hermit life, one of which was sanity, 
Blackman did not see him as having a mental disability. Shortly after, Henry VII, the first Tudor monarch in England, petitioned three popes in succession to canonize his uncle. Excusing his inadequacy as a statesman, Polidori Virgil wrote how he'd been a man of mild and plain-speaking disposition who preferred peace before wars, quietness before troubles, honesty before utility, and said there was not in this world a more pure, honest, and more holy creature. A book was compiled of 174 miracles performed by Henry VI between 1471 and 1495. A servant of Lord Storton, unjustly accused of a capital offense in 1484, was saved, as Thomas Fuller had been, by a ghostly royal hand thrust between his neck and the gallows rope. It was also recorded that wearing the king's red velvet bonnet kept at Windsor, cured headaches, later thought to have been brain tumors. Henry was credited with bringing back to life victims of the plague and dead children. Though Henry VII's plan to re-entomb his predecessor's body at Westminster Abbey was never realized, a modern statue of the medieval monarch was added to an empty niche in that space in the Ladies' Chapel. It remains to this day. Good night.